Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cool autumn day in the capital, which does happen to be rather bright as well, as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show, we'll be joined by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Edward James alongside me on the programme. Edward is the Managing Director of Edward James London, a provider of bespoke hair and beauty services whose editorial work features in the top publications and London Fashion Week. Um, Edward, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Scott, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves as well, Edward. Um, of course, you are such a um, renowned and sought after name within your industry over 20 years of experience in the hair and beauty sector of course um but obviously with the ongoing covid-19 situation you haven't been immune to the impact of that so just starting on that point just to what extent has this ongoing pandemic situation affected you and your business if we begin with there well it's been a uh, uh a roller coaster of a year, as everyone's saying. Um, for us, we we have three branches based in London. Um, we employ seventy over seventy staff, and so initially we had a closure, um, like many other businesses, um, of nearly four months, which actually resulted in us sort of effectively furloughing um, our team and really trying to work through um, sort of a, a possible opening strategy and date for when uh, we were coming back. So um, for the initial sort of impact was obviously um, no revenue stream coming in um, the four-month period and still having sort of, you know, our overheads, our rents on our three London locations, which are obviously very high. Um, and so the initial shock was kind of trying to manage that situation. And then upon reopening, it's been a very different way of working. Um, you know, I... I have huge respect for everyone uh, in my industry having you know to work um, with PPE and um, working in a, a very COVID nineteen safe or secure way, which um, has been uh, really quite something um, that's challenged everyone, um, not just our industry, um, but you know trying to to do what's right for our team and trying to sort of make sure our our um, our clients are safe and comfortable coming back into um, our, our place of work and still making them feel special. So um, the impact has been, you know, it's ongoing. We, we certainly haven't seen uh, the end of the disruption. Um, but upon reopening, you know, we we effectively were absolutely chock-a-block, fully booked back-to-back for six weeks. Um, we've never done so much trade in, in that six-week period and then all of a sudden, you know, two weeks of <laughs> tumbleweed uh, because everyone had had their hair done. So it, the impact has been you know, in terms of our cash flow and how we've actually had to manage the business and, and plan ahead. It, it's been, you know, challenging and, and a bit unpredictable. And of course, with that disruption being ongoing, as you say, um, of course, having to operate with reduced capacity, social distancing measures in place, different COVID secure guidelines as well, you're having to adhere to. Do you see this sort of feature of the lockdown period being in place within your sector for quite some time yet? Um, it's it's really hard to know sort of what, what we're going to be facing in the next 
you know, six months really. But what we have been seeing like is two very polarized positions from clients. Um, some clients are, you know, are extremely sensitive and extremely worried about um, the safety implications. And some are um, less concerned. Um, and, you know, I, I think we, we treat all of our clients um, with the most respect and we take the most serious approach to it. So I think for the ongoing six to 12 months, we're, we're not going to be seeing sort of many changes in terms of how we're operating using, you know, COVID secure uh, cleaning practices. And, you know, our industry in general um, really should be um, very hygienic, like food preparation, you know, you would expect your your hairdresser to be cleaning their tools and implements. But we've obviously had to take that, um, you know, a whole level up. We've got partitioning screens installed, which will remain so. We, every single station, chair, uh, footrest, everything has to be sanitized every single time between every client. Um, and, you know, all of that sort of obviously impacts on the time that we are spending um, in preparation for every service. But it's also meaning that we are actually um, having to factor that into sort of the cost of the, the running of the business. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of um, salons I know have actually increased their prices. We really didn't want to do that because we felt, you know, this is a tough time for everyone. And, and compassionately, we feel for our clients, you know, they're also going through a tough time. So we, we actually stuck, we kept our prices um, at the same level. Um, and we really just tried to, operate more effectively, which is what we're going to have to continue to do, looking at where we can uh, reduce costs and where we can um, look at alternative revenue sources as a business. And when, of course, the uh, the business did initially open back up again after the initial lockdown period, I can imagine that with hairdressers having been closed for quite some months, there might have been one or two little disasters that you found yourself having to address with people who <laughs> tried to cut their own hair or colour their own hair. Is that something that you found yourself having to deal with? Oh, we had numerous. Um, we actually, in preparation of reopening, we actually held a training um session on Zoom remotely with all of our stylists on how to deal with, you know, the, the new hair, <laughs> the new normal hair that was going to be coming in the doors. Mm. Um, we had, you know, obviously uh, clients who hadn't maybe had their hair coloured for uh, four or five months or possibly even longer if they hadn't had it done just before the lockdown. So we had to factor in additional time and also managing expectations for clients. Obviously, if they've not had their hair coloured for a long time, it, it sometimes takes one or two services, but to get them back on track. But actually, um, on the whole, our clients, um, on the whole, they were very good. They didn't um, tend to get the scissors out. I do know a lot of my female clients ended up cutting their husband's hair. And um, and actually, I, I believe divorce rates have gone up through lockdown. So I hope that's got <laughs> nothing to do with it. Um, but also, sort of, you know, we were getting a lot of messages, you know, from clients asking for advice on how they could, you know, maintain their colour at home, or how they could even, you know, cut their own fringe, or how they could cut their their husband's hair. And obviously, we wanted to help people as much as possible. So, you know, um, we saw our role in in that capacity really being almost a community leader and showing, you know, and, and helping people as much as we could. Um, so we actually. Um, decided that we we would sell bespoke colour to our clients, which meant that you know, and, and actually a full um, uh, 
sort of training for them on how to do a little touch up at home and that wouldn't go wrong. So we tried to minimize the amount of damage done. Um, and I think, I think we did really well and as did our clients. So, you know, if, if it went wrong, it, we totally understand that that, mm. um, that it was part of lockdown. It's almost a badge of honor, isn't it? Really cutting your own hair. It is, isn't it? It's certainly an ambitious thing to uh, to try, um, unless you're going for um, just a buzz cut all over as a gentleman, I uh, suppose, for sure. Um, and I can imagine it's certainly a challenge that you probably never envisioned would be on the horizon nine years ago when you chose to uh, go and open your own business. And if we just sort of think back to uh, that period of time, um, what was it, Edward, that really made you think that going it alone was going to be the way forward for you and setting up your own business in this industry? Well, I felt for me, when I opened uh, my business, I'd worked um, in the West End um, and, you know, many years ago, you had to go to a West End salon if you wanted to get a really um, superior haircut or colour um, and the general focus was on West End. And due to how we're working now, you know, clients are working from home. They don't have the time necessarily to be travelling an hour one way into central London and an hour back arranging childcare and, you know, they don't want to necessarily use their weekend time as we're, we're all, you know, very time strapped. Um, so my concept for opening the business was to bring West End hairdressing um, further out of central London to make it convenient and operate 20. We basically have our salons open seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day. So it means our clients can come in as early as 6 a.m. for an appointment um, and we close at nine in the evening. Um and we've really sort of tried to work with what is happening in the industry where um, people want current, good quality hairdressing at reasonable prices, but they also want it at their convenience. And we're increasingly with the lockdown, what we have seen is people are not going into the office now and they're not going into central London. Um, and actually, we've been getting a lot of uh trade and new clients coming to us who would have previously gone into central London. So my passion has always really been about making an amazing experience for clients and giving them that West End feel. Um, and, you know, we've had to adapt it a little bit recently. We All of our services, we give a complimentary um, aromatherapy head massage before you have your hair cut or coloured. And obviously due to sort of COVID safety, we've had to park that temporarily um, and look at other ways that we can add value to our clients' um, experience in the salon. But we, you know, we we work really hard and tirelessly at making sure that our clients feel special and valued. And, and really that's where my passion lies. And who would you say, um, or what would you say, have been some of your biggest inspirations and influences as you've gone through your career within the industry? Well, obviously, um, you know, there's been big names who, you know, um, Vidal Sassoon, um, Nikki Clark, I used to work for Nikki, um, and, you know, there's the hairdressing side of things, but um, it sounds cringeworthy, but I have to say my parents are a huge inspiration for me. Um, Neither hairdressers, one is a, a barrister and one's a GP. Um, they were very uh, <laughs> concerned that I decided to go into a very alternative hair, um, career of hairdressing. Um, and, you know, previously, I think hairdressing had a connotation of it. it was a thing you did if you didn't succeed at school. And for me, I've always had this passion for doing hair um, and the aesthetic side of it. But making people feel really good. So my parents really, you know, they grafted and worked very hard 
Um, and, you know, in the 90s, the session, they lost everything and they had to start from scratch again. So, you know, I kind of think back to that period in their lives and, you know, where a lot of clients are right now and businesses. And, you know, I think it's about being resilient and smart and sort of, you know, um, looking even, you know, at the likes of B. Darcy Soon, who, you know, effectively changed how hairdressing worked and how, you know, the whole look of hairdressing prior to Vidal, it was very much about setting hair and, you know, a very kind of slightly um, dated look. And he sort of, he got rid of all of that, you know, he, it was all about sort of the cut and the form and, you know, so um, inspiration sort of drawn from, from all of that really. And considering that your business has become incredibly successful, not only are you one of the most sought after colorists within your industry, but you've also established yourself um, with um, having royal family members and beauty editors among your clientele. You worked on Catwalk and Editorial for some incredible names, London Fashion Week, BAFTA Film being some of them. You've featured in publications such as Vanity Fair. now, what advice would you give to somebody having had all of that success who was maybe looking to start a business themselves just to get them on the road to a similar success as yourself? Um, I think that the key focus needs to be what what are you trying to um, deliver? So what is it that mm. is unique about what you're doing? Because, you know, there are um, thousands, I think something like 12,000 uh, barbers and um, hairdressers in the UK, I might be wrong, that figure is from a few years ago, but um, in that, you have to sort of think, what is it that you are delivering and how are you delivering it? Because, you know, social media has sort of changed how our industry works and it's, it's become even more focused on visual. Um, and, and, you know, for us, for example, um, we get more traffic through our Instagram than we would through our, um, our website, which, you know, Ten years ago, that was very, much, very, very different. And so, it's how we are communicating, and how, how if you're going into this industry, what is it that you a enjoy, but b what do you feel like you can add that that adds extra value or makes something um, special for your clients? Because that is essentially what it comes down to. And I think for us, it's very much about relationship building. Whether it's us working with a brand like Chanel or whether it's working with a client in the salon, it's very much about understanding what it is that they want from the relationship and showing them that, you know, we are going above and beyond and we're committed to them. So, for example, we have um, uh, in the in the salon, we've worked with uh, Stand Up to Cancer previously, and actually we have a policy which we brought in where if a client, one of our clients is going through cancer treatment, we actually, uh, we don't charge them for hair services through the duration of their treatment until their hair's grown back. And, you know, we will um, offer them sort of wig services as well. And that's something that we want to do as part of, the, of our community. And I think it's those little things. It's really building those relationships. And, you know, um, hair is such a personal thing that if you're, if you're linking with, you know, very few people get to touch your head if you think about it. Um, and it's about that connection and, and you know, um, seeing how you can help individuals feel better but also look amazing as well 
And over the uh, the next 12 months, because I do want to talk about the future just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Edward, we know that we're going to have to continue, um, all of us in all walks of life, adjusting to this new way of living and working, the new normal as it's being built, as we get to grips with these new COVID restrictions that are coming into place. And we could well be in this for the long haul. But over the course of the next year, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve with your own business? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time in 12 months? Well, obviously, there's the aspirational thing of, you know, I, I have always sort of viewed, um, you know, times of challenge as times where you can actually find something new or something inspiring or, you know, I really think, I think I'm seeing from our clients huge support and, you know, um, some of the messages that came through in lockdown really, it, it really meant a lot to myself and our team to see that support. And, Really, I sort of looked at how we can operate the business safely. Um, we can bring in services maybe to, to, we're seeing clients coming in maybe a little less frequently because people are worried about spending. Um, but looking at how we can add value, how we can sort of help them to manage their budget um, through, you know, either how we're pricing things or, or, or alternative services that we're offering um, to help them manage their hair. And, you know, it's very much about, um, being transparent with the client and, and helping them to do that. So for the next 12 months, partly we are looking at sort of running the business um, in a way that we are um, trying to keep income consistent rather than sort of the ebbs and flows that we've been seeing in the last three months. Um, and it's a little hard to predict because obviously if there was another lockdown, you know, that can be challenging again. Um, but for us, looking at alternative revenue streams, uh, for example, in the lockdown, selling colour kits, that worked extremely well for us. Um, and also, uh, we launched an online shop on our website, which also has helped as well. And then looking at how we are training our team, because obviously, um, it makes more sense that our team have more flexibility in their skills. And it means you know, we can we can invest in them um, and that they're actually learning about you know how to deliver the best service at the most challenging time. So for us, it's really been a case of looking at this in a positive way, even though it has been incredibly challenging, um, and looking at how we can future-proof our business and our industry. Absolutely. It is going to be a very interesting time for the uh, the sector going forward. And I'll certainly be uh, keeping an eye on um, yourself, um, Edward, as we go through this uh, next few months. And in fact, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today, I think it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the show with us at some point in this next year, just to see how things are coming along and just how the industry is changing and continually adapting to all of this. Scott, I would love that. That would be great because we're also you know, obviously facing Brexit coming up and sort of changes to employment status for, um, I mean, our staff in London, we we have 70 staff and I would say probably 70% of those um, are not from the UK. Um, so obviously we're facing um, challenges with um, staffing and finding really good quality um, staff who are trained to a really high standard. So it will be really, really good to come back and, and um, discuss that later in the year as well. 
yes, certainly that is a challenge that certainly hasn't been forgotten while COVID has been roaring on behind the scenes. Of course, the Brexit trade negotiations have been continuing and hopefully at some point in this coming month, we'll know whether we'll be leaving with a deal or without a deal. So that's something that's certainly going to impact businesses and something that certainly we can sort of reassess once the time has come and we know exactly where we're going as a country at that point in time. Absolutely. Brilliant. I'd certainly welcome the opportunity to have you back on the show, Ed, but it's been a real, real pleasure having you on to discuss your views. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in the future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. You too, Scott. Thank you again. I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning into this today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was an absolute pleasure to welcome Edward James, Managing Director of Edward James London, onto the programme today. And coming up next, it's now time for Matthew O'Neill and his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, to feature on the programme. Um, Lord Blunkett is a distinguished political figure and enjoyed an illustrious career despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in the Cabinet of former Prime Minister Tony Blair and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the Upper House of Parliament since 2015, having been anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in the August of that year. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett, and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've 
become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. 
Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool.
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision one of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.